Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. In December 2004, I went to heaven. Well, not literally. It's, it's not one of those kind of stories. In December 2004, I went to Kenya, Africa, and I, most of the trip I was involved with a group of pastors looking at various ministries that our denomination helped out with. But in the last three days, we went on a safari in the Maasai Mara in the southern part of Kenya. The first bit, the missionary bit, was extraordinary. The safari was heavenly, a gorgeous lodgings, incredible food. The landscape around there is breathtaking in every way. The animals, exquisite. But what made it especially heavenly was Stephen. He was our guide. He was a Maasai. He'd grown up in that area. He knew every dip and swale of the land. He seemed to know every animal by name. They, Many of them seemed to know him. But this especially... The, the typical approach in a safari is all of the vehicles out in safari kind of crowd together. Something's happening, a herd of elephants or a pride of lions or this great uh, migration of wildebeests and zebras, and, and everybody goes charging over there, and it's sort of like rush hour in a major city. But Stephen, uh, he hardly ever joined the crowd because he knew the land so well, knew the animals so well, he had an instinct about where they really were. And he, and this was the key, Stephen could see things that most everyone else missed. I remember vividly him stopping and he'd squint over in the horizon. We'd all squint looking to see what he was seeing. We couldn't see anything. He got his binoculars, he'd look, he'd adjust. Uh, he would put them down. We'd pick up his binoculars and look through them. We couldn't see anything. He was sort of bombing toward the place where he had seen something. And it was only usually within maybe 100 yards, maybe 100 feet, that we finally saw what he saw. There was a great, huge rhino crashing around in the bush. Or, in one case, an enormous pride of lions lying, lounging under a tree. We just got to spend an hour with them, just us, our group, Stephen and the Lions. That was December 2004. In July 2007, I got to go back to the same area, work with the same churches in Nairobi, and then in the last three days, going on safari. This time, though, I had a team from the church I was pastoring, and I had my family, my wife and all three kids. I was excited about the whole thing, but especially the safari. I wanted them to experience what I had. I wanted them to see this gorgeous landscape. I wanted them to enjoy this amazing meals, but especially I wanted them to go see what others were missing. But we didn't get Stephen. We got William. William didn't grow up in that area. William 
had no instincts for animals, landscape. William was the guy not only following the pack, but always at the end of the line. Uh, he'd wait until he saw some massive plume of dust somewhere on the savannah, and he'd go over there, and we'd be, you know, a hundred vehicles, and we'd be trying to peer at something. We didn't often even know what we're trying to look at amongst all the crowd, the commotion. He spent most of his time on the phone. One night, I think it was the second night, we're coming back, and I was uh, very discouraged by all of this. And uh, we hadn't seen most of the big animals, the lions, the rhinos, and not any elephants. And we're driving along, and it was uh, twilight, and we're coming back to the lodge, and so we were all by ourselves. We weren't following the crowd. And we rounded a bend, and to my astonishment to everyone, we all gasped, along the side of the road was an entire family about seven or eight elephants, big ones, little ones, mamas, papas, babies. I was so thrilled. Finally, we're going to get all alone this up and close with these beautiful animals. And William sailed right past. When he was uh, 50 feet on the other side of them, I yelled at him. He was on the phone and he was startled and he put down his phone. He said, what, what? And I said, it's William, elephants and he said where if stephen saw what most people missed william missed what most people saw and i was so disappointed for the team for my family for me i was angry we paid a lot of money for this and it was an exercise in missing I thought of those two stories, Stephen, William, and this story that we're looking at today, Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Uh, I, I thought of those stories from Africa when I read about the story from Israel. This has been called historically, traditionally, the triumphal entry of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. And though none of the gospel writers use that word triumphal, we pick up that word because the mood is triumphant, it's joyous, it's celebratory, it's full of this uh, anticipation, it's this raucous singing so loud, so rambunctious that the Pharisees titch, titch, and they scold Jesus and his disciples for their loud singing. He says, I can't stop them if I tried the stones themselves would sing. It's called the triumphal entry because the triumph of the crowd celebrating what's happening. But when we look at Jesus, we don't pick up a mood of triumph at all, especially in Luke's gospel, but not really in any of the gospels. Let's just stick with the Luke story, Luke 19. There's two emotions that Jesus displays as he comes into Jerusalem on what maybe should be the happiest day of his life, that finally his disciples and the larger crowd are perceiving that he is more than just a miracle worker, more than just a wise teacher, that there's uh, some their messianic hopes are being fulfilled and met in him. He's a king coming into his own. 
Finally, they get it. This maybe should be the happiest moment of Jesus' life, but the two emotions Jesus displays in this story are first deep sorrow, heartbreak, and then blazing anger. He rages. He weeps and he rages. What, what, what is he weeping and raging about? They're so supposed to sort of have to do with the same thing, with missing it, not seeing what's right in front of you, or obscuring from other sight what's right in front of them. It's missing it. He's deeply sorrowful over all of those who did not recognize the day came Jesus or God came to visit. God's visitation, God come among us and did not understand, therefore, the deep peace, the real peace, the lasting peace that God came to bring. He's sorrowful about that and he's so angry, so angry at those who would participate, be complicit in People not understanding that God has come to be with us and not understanding the real source of peace. Jesus weeps. Jesus rages. This term, weep, uh, the pastor scholar Fred Craddock says it's, it's the only word that works here. We can't say that Jesus cried because our association with crying is that there's something cathartic about a good cry. Something gets washed from you, something gets released from you, you are deeply burdened, you're sad about something, and you cry and you feel better after. And Craddock says that weeping or lament isn't like that. When we weep, we, we feel something inside of us twist. We enter into a deeper anguish. We don't come out of weeping, feeling better. We often feel worse because we've taken on the heartbreak of God. Says it's the only word really that works here that Jesus wept. Think about that phrase itself, John eleven thirty five at the very grave of his friend Lazarus that Jesus is about to raise from the dead, rather than being triumphant and celebratory, you know, watch this. Jesus sees the grief around him and he enters into it, the anguish of it, and he weeps. Gethsemane, as he goes and does that which will bring us peace, he spent the night weeping and his sweat was like drops of blood. The writer of Hebrews says that actually throughout Jesus' life, uh, he made his request known to God with loud cries and tears. He wept. Of course, the famous portrait of Isaiah, the, the, the what really brings us peace, Isaiah 53, Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. And Jesus weeps. What causes him to weep? is when people don't recognize what it looks like to have God come among us and therefore miss the true peace we could have. He's not angry about that. 
not angry at your husband or your wife. He's not angry at your son or your daughter. He's not angry at your mom or your dad. He's not angry at your coworker, your neighbor. To the extent that it's hidden from their eyes, to the extent they cannot see it, they do not get it. They don't understand that God has come among us in Jesus. It was easy to miss. He himself said it. They don't understand that the only lasting peace comes from the finished work of Jesus. He doesn't get angry. He weeps. I often get angry and sad about things not going my way. And Jesus gets angry and sad about people missing Why do they miss it? There's many reasons. The story gives us a hint why it is hidden from their eyes. Jesus is hidden from their eyes, and so now there's going to be siege works, and there's going to, you know, the armies are going to come against Jerusalem, and it's going to end badly for the people. In other words, he's hinting at something that people often do when they're looking for peace. They often look for some worldly or earthly solution. In this case, politics. Uh, he's talking about this, if only we could get rid of Rome, if only we could get our party in, if only we could somehow uh, vote in the people or overthrow the people or whatever who are bringing the misery and the, and, the, and the next group would bring us the peace. If only we could get the political alignments we want, we would have peace. And Jesus is saying that actually it's not going to bring you peace. He's not critiquing that you can have good leadership, you can have some political parties better than the other, some financial systems better than the other. He's just simply saying, don't be deluded into thinking that's where your peace comes from. Don't think if you get your man or woman in office, your party in office, that it's going to finally happen. This is actually not just a problem that people then had, it's a problem we have, maybe more so. Think of politically divided our land is, our world is, in Christian churches and Christian people not speaking to one another because this person is a supporter of this party and this person of that party. This is delusional because none of these people or parties, as much as they have a good role to play in society, but none of them bring us peace any more than getting more money or a better job brings you peace. It's not a bad thing. It's just not the source of actually what brings us hope. There's only one thing that does that. God came and visited us and he died to bring us back into fellowship with him and to miss what gives us peace that and to get caught up in pursuit of all these things that we think will but don't breaks the heart of Jesus. Are you are you missing it? Are you missing it? Have you actually broken company with another Christ follower over their political stand? Really? It is about 
Christ among us, Christ within us, Christ the hope of glory. Don't miss that. Now Jesus weeps when people miss it. And then Jesus rages, goes into the temple. So he comes into Jerusalem and instead of going, wow, he says, oh, Lord, so many missing it. So many can't see it. So many don't get it. So many think it's going to come through some other means. He weeps and then he goes to the center of that city, the temple, and he rages. Luke gives a very stark description of it. We know from the other Gospels that he uh, is very violent. He braids a whip. He whips people. He throws people out. He overturns tables. He chases them. He makes several loud denunciatory speeches. Jesus rages, what have you done to my house? Now, it's pretty easy to see that the analogy with the temple is our religious institutions today, our churches. And we have to ask, um, what makes Jesus rage at our churches? It makes him so angry when he comes into them that he would start turning stuff over and chasing people out and denouncing what he sees. What, what, what about our religion does Jesus hate? In summary, I think what he hates is that when our religion becomes not a way of people seeing Christ and understanding his work, but when it becomes a way of actually hiding it from their eyes, when we're complicit in what people are, and people missing it, when we're the problem. He, he hates it when the church loves power more than servanthood. We love politics more than the kingdom of God. We, we love our kind more than every tribe and tongue and nation. We love our version of theology rather than the simplicity of devotion to Christ. When we love our comfort rather than comforting others. When we love our own version of peace, rather than proclaiming the Prince of Peace. He doesn't like that. He rages at that. If you go through the chapter just prior to this entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple, that's late in Luke 19. If you go into chapter 18 and then the material in chapter 19 coming up to this, it's almost a roll call. The stories in there, Luke 18, uh, the first half of Luke 19, almost a roll call of those who miss it, miss what God's really doing, how peace really comes, or are preventing others are causing others to miss it. It's almost, a, 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 we got a list of those folks or a list of those who get it, who do see it, often in spite of people trying to prevent it. Go back to the very beginning of Luke 18. I'll just rattle through this really quickly. We have, we start with a widow and a judge 
and the judge is corrupt. The judge has power. The judge is part of a system, and he's trying to keep justice from happening. He's trying to blow the, this widow off. He's missing it and keeping others from seeing it, but she persists, and she sees it, and she gets it. We have a, a story right after that about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the, the Pharisee is missing it and actually keeping others from missing, so proud of his virtue. And the tax collector understands his desperate need for God. He beats his chest, looks down, and says, God, please have mercy on me. He gets it. We have a story of a rich young ruler who misses it and maybe prevents others from getting it. So, again, proud of his virtue. Uh, so believes that he has done everything he needs to do to get right with God. And then we have the story of little children who run to Jesus. And despite others wanting to shoo him away, they want to be near Jesus. They get it. Uh, we have a story of a blind man and those in the crowd who lead the way. And the ones who lead the way rebuke the blind man. He's crying out to Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to talk to him. The blind man gets it. Even though he can't physically see, he actually sees who Jesus is while the others are missing. We have a story of Zacchaeus and the people in the community. Zacchaeus is this notorious tax collector hated by everyone. And Jesus comes into Jericho, into their town, and everyone just wants to kind of, whatever, get near Jesus, but probably for the wrong reasons. Zacchaeus climbs a tree, and Jesus says, hey, you're the guy I want to have lunch with. You're the guy I'm coming to your house. Actually, I'm going to bring salvation to your house. The least likely person, Zacchaeus, is the one who gets it, who sees. And we have story of some servants that the master gives talents to and and one of them a lazy frightened man doesn't get it he just buries that thing doesn't put it to work at all and others do they understand there's a kingdom that i'm serving there's a mission that i'm on and the the one who entrusted me with this is not narrow, he's not austere, he's not stingy, he's not taking out what he hasn't put in. The one who gave this to me is abounding in generosity and joyful and wants above all for me to come and join the party. Mm. In the midst of that list, that roll call, who misses it, who doesn't, are the disciples. That'd be mostly you and me. And interestingly, there's two portraits in chapter 18, verse 34, when Jesus speaks about his death, his coming death and what his death will do. His disciples don't get it. And Jesus rebukes them. Are you, are you missing what brings you peace? Are you missing the day of God's visitation? Or are you not getting it? He rebukes them. But in chapter 19, 37, as Jesus comes in Jerusalem, Luke says it is the disciples, the great crowd of disciples, who actually see. Do you ever ask yourself what kind of disciple you are? Am I, uh, in, in my deepest self, 
Am I the one who understands what it means that Christ has come among us and actually what brings me peace? I can get on pursuits of all the other things that I think will bring me peace, and they're uh, temporary, ephemeral, shallow. And the one thing, the only thing that really brings me peace is what Christ came to do at Calvary. But he didn't come into Jerusalem to be hail king. He came to be beaten and mocked. He didn't come to receive a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. He did not come to mount a throne, but to be nailed onto a cross. He did not come to conquer militaristically the oppressor. He came to defeat all that which keeps us down at its very source. He came to die and then to rise again that we might live. This is what brings us peace. Please don't miss that. If you've come today and you've never embraced that, please don't miss that. If you believe that, but you forgot that, you got distracted, you got chasing other stuff, come back to that. See the one who's come among us, God's visitation. What brings you peace? We'll close with this. Uh, read a book by a pastor a couple of years ago. And he tells a story of being part of a, a church where he could talk about social justice, he could talk about politics, he could talk about um, care for the poor, all good things, but nobody wanted to talk explicit, him to talk about Jesus in some explicit way, a personal relationship that wasn't part of the culture and the theology of his church. So for nine years, he's at this church, and he's preaching all of those things, but he's not really talking about Jesus. The week before he resigns from that church and moves on to another one, he goes to a retreat with a number of other pastors, and the great late Michael Green, a flaming evangelist, loved Jesus, it oozed from every pore of him. Michael Green was speaking, and he whole emphasis was on this love, uh, loving Jesus, being loved by Jesus, a simplicity of devotion to Jesus understanding that this is the one who brings you hope, brings you peace, proclaiming that. And the uh, pastors that were at this were kind of divided. Some really loved what Michael Green had to say. Others were offended by it. But this man who wrote the book, he was profoundly convicted that he had not been doing that. He had missed Jesus. He went back to his church, and his very last sermon with that church was this proclamation of who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how you can have a relationship with Christ. He finishes the sermon. He goes to the door. Uh, people are lining up to not just thank him, but to say goodbye, because he's leaving after about nine or ten years at that church. So a long lineup, people taking their time. He sees this woman in line, older woman in her 70s, and she keeps getting nearer and nearer to when she gets her chance with him. And then she gets out of the line, goes to the back, does this several times, until finally it's just 
the pastor and this woman. And he sees she's overwrought with emotion. She's weeping. And he thinks, oh, she must love me deeply. And she's so sad. I'm leaving. And uh, she's couldn't, you know, she just needed time to try to get collect herself and wanted more time with me. So she comes up to him, tears staining her face, and she leans into his and she says, Pastor, today you talked about who Jesus really is and what Jesus came to do. You have been here almost a decade. Why did you take this long to tell us this? I've taken almost half an hour to tell you really one thing. Jesus is God among us. He came to get up on a cross, to die in your place, to forgive you of your sin, to welcome you into the kingdom of God, to make you a disciple, to make you a son, to make you a daughter, to give you the only true and lasting peace. Don't miss it. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.